John, thank you for that beautiful prayer this morning. Uh, excellent, excellent uh, introduction to, to what I want to share with you. And I'll be honest with you, I think more often we need corporate times of confession. Uh, I think that is so important for us as a church body and as a nation. And so if you have a Bible this morning, I am working through the Gospel of John. We are in John chapter 7, which contains Jesus' high priestly prayer, called by some to be the greatest prayer ever prayed because it is God the Son praying to God the Father. And we are looking at it in four parts, and we are in part three of those four parts this morning, and we're going to be looking at John 17, verses 11 through 19. Last week, we saw that Jesus is now praying for his disciples, and in essence, he's praying for us. Praying for us. And we saw those words in verse 9, that first sentence, I am praying for them. And all of us ought to be in awe of the fact that Jesus is constantly praying for us. We pray. But he is always praying for us, always interceding for us. He is always our great high priest, and he continues to pray for us. And we get great insight into how he prays for us which helps us in our own prayer life. Verses 11 through 19, Jesus praying to the Father in the upper room. His disciples are there. They're listening to him pray to the Father. This is the night before his crucifixion, the night before he is mocked and beaten and crucified, and he prays, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now... But now I am coming to you. And these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. I do not ask. I do not ask that you take them out of the world but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Well, our first point this morning is I am no longer in the world. Jesus is about to leave the world, but his disciples remain in the world. So he prays for them. So he prays for them. And in verse 11, he says, 
and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. That is the context of this whole chapter. Jesus is leaving. He's going back to the Father. We saw in verse 5 that he's going back to the glory that he had with the Father even before the world existed. He's leaving. But they're going to remain. But they are in the world and I am coming to you. And so he says, Holy Father. That is so interesting. He doesn't just say Father, as he often does in the Gospel of John, but he says, Holy Father. He is praying to the one who is perfect. He is praying to the one who is blameless. He is praying to the one who is the very essence of holiness. He's praying to the Father for you. He's praying for me. Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me that they may be one even as we are one. Holy Father, keep them in your name. We saw this already, that the name of God, like we pray in the name of Jesus, when you see it referred to in that way, it is a reference to the very being and character of God and all that he has planned to accomplish, especially in his salvation plan in Christ. It is why Christ came into this world to be the Savior, to save us from our sins. And he says, Holy Father, keep them in your name. May they have an accurate, deep, passionate understanding of who God really is, the true character of God, and that he has sent his Son into this world to complete our salvation and to make it available to all who believe. Holy Father, keep them in that name, the name you have given me that they may be one even as we are one. So he prays for our unity. We're going to look at this more next Sunday morning, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it this morning, but it's very important because if there is one misunderstood and misinterpreted part of Jesus' high priestly prayer, it is his prayer for unity. When Jesus prays that they may be one even as we are one, he is not asking that all Christians everywhere just lay aside all their differences and come together. He's not asking that we all hold hands and sing Kumbaya. That's not what he's asking for. But that's kind of how it's been interpreted. And again, we'll see that more next Sunday morning. He's praying that we, as the followers of Christ, as born-again believers in Jesus, that we would stand together in our love for the Father, knowing him in his fullness as he has revealed himself in Scripture, as he has revealed himself in Christ. We would love him together. That we would love one another together. That we would take our stand together in love for one another, even as we saw in depth in John chapter 13. And that we would stand together in the defense of the truth and obedience to the truth. That's what he's saying. Oh, Father, help them to be one 
even as we are one, and that's so key here. Help them to be one, even as we are one. So in verse 12, he says, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. Saying, Father, while I was on the earth, I kept them. I revealed you to them. In my life and in my teachings, I revealed you to them. In everything I did, my miracles, everything, the casting out of demons, whatever it was, I revealed myself to them and I kept them. I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I guarded them. There was that sense of special protection that Jesus provided while he was physically present here upon the earth. And he says, Father, not one of them has been lost. Everyone who truly believed is still with me, and they will never be lost. Great thought on the security of our own salvation. You have given them to me. I have guarded them, Jesus said, and not one of them has been lost. And then he says this, accept the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. Now we have to be careful with that word accept. Jesus isn't, he is not saying, well, I guarded them and not one of them is lost except Judas Iscariot. Well, I failed with him. I was able to keep everybody else, but I wasn't able to keep him. That's not the thought at all. The word accept here, it's an accurate translation but it's difficult for us in our English language. This could be translated, and not one of them has been lost, period. Period. However, Father, however, we know of the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. I spent an entire message a couple of months ago just talking about Judas Iscariot. One of the most sobering and tragic figures in all of scripture, in all of human history. He was with Jesus for three years. He walked with him. He was taught by him. He saw all the miracles that Jesus did and never embraced him as savior. Never truly believed. And then we saw in this upper room discourse that dramatic moment when Satan enters into him. It is John in his gospel that tells us that, that Satan actually entered into Judas Iscariot. And so we have that intriguing scenario where he is fully accountable, fully culpable for his actions. He chose of his own will not to believe, and yet at this very same time, he is the fulfillment of scripture. He chose not to believe. And somehow, some way, the prophets knew that this, was going to be, that this was going to happen. And he is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Well, with that in mind, Jesus prays that we might experience the fullness of his joy. In verse 13, he says, but now I am coming to you. 
And these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. This directly connects with verse 12. He says, I have kept them in your name. I have guarded them. Not one of them has been lost, but now I'm coming to you. And what Jesus is saying here is, Father, in essence, I'm handing them off to you. While I was with them, I kept them in your name. While I was with them, I guarded them. But now I'm coming to you. And so I pray these things. I speak these things in the world so that my disciples and all subsequent disciples may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. First of all, and we've already seen this in the Upper Room Discourse, Jesus wants you to be filled with joy. I don't know about you, but I'm so thankful for that. He is praying. He taught the disciples in John 15, the reason I want you to abide in me. First of all, is you can't do anything apart from me. Second, so that my joy may be in you. Oh, brothers and sisters in Christ this morning, Jesus wants you to be a joy-filled person. And when we go around constantly discouraged or critical or negative, it's not biblical. It's not Christ-like. And I think every single one of us here constantly needs to do an attitude check in our own lives. He's praying for you right now that his joy may be fulfilled in you, that you may be the very expression of his joy. Do you know what Jesus' joy is? And I think this is amazing. Jesus' joy is his intimate fellowship with the Father. He knows there is no doubt that the Father loves him, that the Father sent him into the world. We have seen this all throughout the Gospel of John. I am in the Father. The Father is in me. I only do what the Father tells me to do. I only act as the Father instructs me to act. The Father and I are one. We are in complete harmony and complete essence with one another. He's my joy. And I believe that's what he's praying for you and for me. He's praying that you would know in the deepest part of your being that God loves you and cares for you. That your fellowship and intimate friendship with God would be so profound that you would always know that the Father loves you and he cares for you. In one sense, there is nothing more important in your life. You know, I could study all kinds of doctrine. I could read books on theology and impress you with all kinds of theological terms that I have down pat. But if I am not convinced in my soul that God loves me, and cares for me, it's all meaningless. It's all meaningless. Do you know why? Because every single person in here, every single one of us is going to go through hard times. 
And there are people sitting in this auditorium this morning that I know have gone through some brutally, brutally hard times in their lives. And you've got to know, no matter what happens, that he loves you and he cares for you. Your joy does not come from understanding your circumstances. Your joy comes from knowing God loves you and cares for you more than you will ever understand, no matter what you see, no matter what happens to you. He loves you. I may go through the deepest valley. I may walk through the fiercest flame. I have to know he loves me. I don't understand what I'm going through. I may not understand what I see, but I've got to know this. It doesn't matter because I know whatever I'm going through, whatever ha is happening, he loves me and he cares for me. Oh, Father, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Well, our second point this morning is the hatred of the world and the power of the word. Jesus prays for us because the world hates us. Verse 14. Father, I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Father, I have given them your word. What you have instructed me, I have instructed them. I have given them your world. And he says this, and the world has hated them. We need this verse so that we do not look at the world through rose-colored glasses. The world hates us. It doesn't say that it dislikes us. It doesn't say that it occasionally disagrees with us. It hates us. Our worldview is different than theirs. Our moral values are different than theirs. The way we teach, the way we live, in many ways says they're wrong because they're not following the design and plan of God. We tell them that they're sinful and in need of a savior just like we are, and they don't like it. But here's the important part. They don't just hate you because of your moral values or your worldview. They hate you because of whom you serve. They hate you because they hated Jesus first. You know, it's interesting how many people in the world love to talk about Jesus. But it's usually a Jesus of their own imagination. It's not a Jesus that's found and grounded in Scripture. Think about it. And I know you know this. Jesus came into this world and lived a perfect life. Never sinned once. Not once. And they mocked him. And they beat him. And they killed him. 
Jesus says the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. You are not of this world. You belong to a different kingdom. You belong to a different king. Now, that is so important for us to remember, and I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm about to say. We all have strong political views, and there are certain viewpoints that we take in politics. But above all that, we need to remember something. This is not our home. We serve a different kingdom, and we serve a different king. Never forget that and always keep that in mind. Do not ever become obsessed and immersed in this world when you are not of this world. So, in verse 15, he prays, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So interesting. He just says, the world hates them. But I don't, want to, I don't want you to take them out of the world. You'd think that Jesus would pray in verse 15, since the world hates them, Father, get them out of here. Get them out of this world. But he doesn't pray that. He says, I pray you keep them from the evil one. I pray that you will protect them from Satan. Evil one is the correct translation here. He is not talking about evil in general. He is talking very specifically about Satan, about the devil. Father, Jesus is praying this for you right now, that the Father would keep us from the evil one, from the lies and deceptions of Satan. I don't know about you. I need that prayer. I'm glad my high priest is praying that prayer for me right now. Here's something fascinating. On Father's Day, I challenged all of our fathers that you need to go to war in prayer for your wife and for your children. Did you know that Jesus is going to war for you right now in prayer? Did you know that? He's going to war for you in prayer. Mothers, you need to go to war in prayer for your husband and for your children because your high priest is always going to war for you in prayer in his intercessory high priestly praying for us. I pray, he says, Father, I pray that you'll keep them from Satan, from his deceptions and from his lies. Oh, I'm so thankful that he prays that. But notice he says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. I want them in the world. And I want to just gently share this with you because I hear this from time to time and I understand what people are saying. Sometimes we get so discouraged. Sometimes we get so frustrated. Sometimes we get so overwhelmed by all, that's, all the evil that's happening in our country and in the world, and we just say, Father, get me out of here. 
I've heard people pray, Lord, I want the rapture to happen tonight. I just want to get out of here. Did you know that's not a biblical prayer? It's not how we should be praying. It's not. With one exception. One exception. If someone's dying from a terminal illness, if someone is elderly and they've come to the very end of their life and they're on that doorstep of eternity and you can see them laboring, maybe suffering, I think it's very natural to pray, Father, please take them home. Please take them home. But for the rest of us, but for the rest of us, that's not how we should be praying. In 1 John 5, 19, it says, We know that we are from God and that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. I've always been fascinated by that verse. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So our prayer is not to get out of here. Our prayer is to go forth in great victory in Christ. Engaging in spiritual warfare that God would protect us from the evil one. He has us here for his purpose so that we might be his ambassadors. And with that thought in mind, look at verse 16. Jesus says it succinctly. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. John Kresge hit that so well in his prayer. I appreciated that this morning. We're not of this world. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. You've heard that many times, and it's so true. So our prayer is not that we would be taken out of this world. Our prayer is that we would go forth trusting Christ with every fiber of our being, being victorious, not in our own strength, but in his. Now, with all of that this morning, with all of that, I want us to pay especially close attention to verse 17. When we come to verse 17, we come to one of the most important verses in the New Testament. John 17, 17, easy to remember. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Great verse for you to memorize. Short, easy. Reference is easy. Jesus prays for you to the Father. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Now this verse is a classic statement concerning the accuracy, inerrancy, and perfection of the Bible. The accuracy, inerrancy, and perfection of the Bible. Sanctify here means not just to be set apart. It means to be set apart to God. It doesn't just mean be set apart from the world. It means to be set apart to God. It's an important distinction. I think there have been groups throughout church history who want to be set apart from the world, so they go off and kind of live by themselves, which is not what God wants. Sanctify them, set them apart from the world to God, to be his, 
to serve him, to live for him. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. This could be an entire sermon, but I want you to know this morning, you cannot grow in your Christian life. You cannot mature spiritually. You cannot grow stronger in Christ. You cannot grow to be more Christ-like apart from the Word of God. Every single Christian, man, woman, boy, girl, needs to be engaged in the daily reading and studying and obeying of the Word of God. And not only that, but to love God's Word. To love it. To find your delight in it. He says, sanctify them. Help them to grow. Help them to grow in Christ. Father, help them to be set apart to you, for you, in your strength. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Constantly, we need to rededicate ourselves to being diligent, accurate, disciplined students of the word of God because we will not grow a part of it. We're working on a scripture memory section. We're not just doing that as a church to do it. It's because I want you, I want me, I want you to love the word of God. It is the source of your strength. It is the source of your growth because it's alive. There is no other book in the entire universe that is like the Bible. The Bible is alive. It is the very words of God. As you read it, study it, and obey it, it transforms you. It supernaturally changes who you are as a person. And so in verse 18, he says, As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. So we're not only not to be taken out of the world, he says, I want you to go into the world. Father, send them out into the world. Isn't that great? Father, just as you sent me into the world when I came from heaven to earth, so send them out. God wants you to be his ambassadors. He wants you to be his light. He wants you to be the salt and light of the earth, not only where you are in your community, but to the farthest reaches of, of the world. He wants us to take part in reaching the most unreached people groups of all the world. It's his prayer for us. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. We saw this in John chapter 15, John 15, verses 26 and 27. Jesus says to his disciples, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. And I don't know if you remember when we went over that, but here's the thought. God has sent the helper, the Holy Spirit, into the world. He's going to die, rise again, ascend to the right hand of the Father. He's going to send the helper the Holy Spirit's going to live within us. Jesus Christ lives within us by means of the Holy Spirit, and we become his witnesses. It's Acts 1.8. But you, but you will receive power 
when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the whole world. And then he says in verse 19 of praise, Father, and for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in the truth. The word construction in verse 19 is, is very important. And this verse is more important than a casual reading would lend itself to. Jesus says, I consecrate myself so that you may be sanctified in the truth. I consecrate myself so that you may be sanctified in the truth. Consecrate here means to be given over, to become a sacrifice, to become an offering. So what Jesus is saying here, and it's really powerful, for their sake, Father, I consecrate myself. I'm about to give myself as an atoning sacrifice for their sin. I'm about to rise from the dead. And it is by my power and my enablement that they will be able to understand the truth and to obey the truth. They can't do it without me. It is John 15. Abide in me, for apart from me you can do nothing. I am going to die and rise again so that by my power, by my enabling power, they're going to be able to be sanctified in the truth. Oh, Father, for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in the truth. Titus 2.14 says it perfectly. It says, Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Here's the thought. Jesus died to redeem us. Jesus died to save us so that we might be pure before him, so that we might be zealous for good works. He died to redeem us, to save us, so that we might be pure in his sight, so that we might be a people of good works. Well, let me try to bring this all together this morning as we close. Jesus prays for oneness among his people in the world. One in our love for the Father. United in our love for one another. United in our defense of the truth and obedience of the truth. He prays for our joy. That his joy might find fulfillment in us. He prays that for you that you would know in the depths of your soul that God loves you and cares for you no matter what you go through. He prays that we would be protected from the evil one. He prays that we would be protected from the deceit and lies of Satan. And he prays 
that we would be devoted to the word of God, that we would love his law, that it would be our delight day and night. He prays that for us so that we may be sanctified in the truth and his word is truth. But there's a twofold prayer within that that is especially helpful. He prays, protect them from the evil one, sanctify them in your truth. Protect them from the evil one, sanctify them in the truth. You know how we are protected from the evil one? By staying grounded in the word of God. Do you know how we're protected from Satan's deceit and lies? By staying grounded in the word of God. That's his prayer right now for you. One other thought, and that is this. I just want us to continue to be overwhelmed with the fact that Jesus is praying for you right now. He prays for you all day, every day. I love that. I need to know that. And so, when you come to the throne of grace in prayer, pour out, excuse me, pour out your heart to him because he's pouring out his heart for you. I just want you to think about that. When you come to the throne of grace, pour out your heart to him because he's already pouring out his heart for you. The writer of Hebrews said this, let us come boldly. Let us come boldly to the throne of grace that we might find mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. When you come to the throne of grace, pour out your heart to him because he's already pouring out his heart for you. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you that Jesus prays for us. We praise you because even though the world hates us, you love us, you protect us, and you care for us. Lord, help every one of us, help us to be diligent students of the truth, your truth, the word of God. In Jesus' name, amen.